You're listening to An Educated Guest, a podcast that brings together great minds in higher ed to delve deeper into the innovations and trends guiding the future of education and careers. Hosted by the Executive Vice President and GM of Wiley University Services and Talent Development, Todd Zipper. Hello, I am Todd Zipper, host of An Educated Guest. On today's show, I speak with Pierre Dubuc, co-founder and CEO of Open Classrooms. Pierre is the definition of an innovator. He started working on an idea which eventually became Open Classrooms when he was 11 years old. Today, Open Classrooms offers top quality education to employment programs and career coaching services for students worldwide. Key takeaways from our discussion today. First, how Open Classroom hopes to lower the gap between higher education and career by offering a skills-based and practical curriculum. Second, the invaluable experience learners receive by connecting with mentors and career coaches. Third, the opportunity and value of digital apprenticeships to solve the growing skills gap, especially in technology careers. And fourth, the difference between upskilling and reskilling and how these relate to workforce development and the future of work. Hello, Pierre, and thank you for being here today on An Educated Guest. Hi, Todd. Thank you for having me. All right. I'd like to dive right in and learn a little bit more about your backstory. I know you were an entrepreneur and started noodling on this idea for open classrooms when you were 11 years old, from what I understand. I also understand that most French-speaking people who have learned to code outside of traditional education have learned through open classrooms over the last decade. How did this all come about? Well, it's a long story because we started my co-founder, Mathieu, and I when we were really young in middle school at the age of 11 and 13. So I was 11, Mathieu was 13. And we started in middle school to create online courses the way we, we wanted them. So Mathieu created, wrote some courses. I built a platform. We published them online. It was really courses to help some friends learn web development. So it was like HTML creating websites. So we built this online learning community at first, just as a hobby, pr- frankly. And we did so parallel to studies in middle school, high school, college. It became the reference platform to learn coding in French. And then from there, we switched at the end of our studies to a more fast-growing entrepreneurial journey. So we made it our full-time job. We started to raise venture capital, and then from there to start open classrooms as you know it today. So that was in 2013. So after more than a decade doing it as a hobby, and we built open classrooms as a mission-driven company because of the DNA, because of the history of a project. So we built it as a mission-driven company, and the mission of open classrooms is to make education accessible. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know you talk about something that's near and dear to our heart at Wiley, which is career-connected education, education that leads to a meaningful job and livable wages. And that's what you've been up to for a long time here. I really want to get under the hood of, of what Open Classrooms is, but I think it's you know worth noting that confidence in higher education continues to fall. And based on a survey by the Association of American College Universities, only 60% of employer respondents said they believe that college graduates possess the knowledge and skills to succeed in entry-level positions. Are you surprised by that number and how skewed it is? They're definitely scary, aren't they? I'm not surprised, obviously, because you know I talk to employers all day long, open classrooms, work with 2,000 employers to 
try and upscale and rescale their employees and work with them on apprenticeship. So it's nothing new to me, but it's definitely very concerning and it's getting worse. Year after year, you're going to see increasing numbers of employers thinking that college graduates are not ready for the skills and the jobs they require. It is definitely a major issue as colleges, universities, and, and generally speaking, higher education and vocational training markets don't seem really to align to employers' needs. So we definitely need to course correct this a bit. And this is what we're trying to do with open classrooms. Pierre, I know that you're in the U.S. now, but obviously started this business in France and have a big following in Europe. Do you see similar trends in both Europe, let's say, and the U.S. and obviously the rest of the world as well when we talk about these unprepared folks graduating from college to traditionally? The misalignment between what you learn in college and what employers would like you to learn and, and to have as skills for their own jobs and roles that's the same problem like pretty much anywhere in the world. What is more concerning in the States, I would say, compared to Europe, is obviously the financial return over a college degree because college education is typically, on average, more expensive in the States. We're talking about you know tens of thousands of dollars, whereas in Europe, typically it would be lower, might be publicly funded as well. So the ROI tends to be not that great because it's still another line, but I would say less disastrous. <laughs> so I'd say the gap is definitely more of a problem in the States. The root cause is the same in Europe or in the States. The misalignment between the curriculum offered to college students and the employer's requirements. Great. Well, we're going to get into all that. But first, I want you to lay out for the audience what Open Classrooms is. You know, I came about this company sort of grouping it in this sort of the MOOC-like, direct-to-learner, big platforms like Udacity, Coursera, edX, Masterclass, et cetera. But as I learned more, there's something, frankly, more multidimensional about Open Classrooms and, and what it is doing despite reaching hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. So I would love for you to kind of start from the top and tell us what Open Classrooms is. So Open Classrooms is, as mentioned, it's a platform, it's a mission-driven company. The mission of Open Classrooms is to make education accessible, and especially education leading to jobs. So the end game for us, the North Star of Open Classrooms, is our social impact. We track it in the form of the number of career outcomes. So basically the number of students we place in the workforce. Young people for the first job, working adults for promotion, salary increase, switching careers, creating their own job. When we started 10 years ago, we became the very first fully online college in France. It's quite differentiating, quite unique because we're an online education platform, but we're also a college. So we have our own degree awarding powers. That means that we operate our own associate bachelor's and master's degrees, leading to tomorrow's jobs, tomorrow's skills. So it's very much career-oriented skill-based, so it's based on skills. You have to demonstrate your skills through projects. You have courses to acquire the competencies you need to be successful, and then you're mentored. So you have one-on-one mentorship session with an industry practitioner. So every week, you're gonna spend roughly half an hour to an hour with your mentor over the course of, say, 12 months. So you're gonna meet your mentor like 50 times. So it's a very high-touch, human-based, 
pedagogy. And then the model of open classrooms is obviously toward oriented towards employers. So the outcome again, we're talking about jobs and career outcomes. To get jobs, you need employers. So we work closely with employers. It's a B2B model. We work with employers from Amazon, PwC, McDonald's, and Target. So we do upskilling, reskilling, and apprenticeship programs for them. So we train more than 300,000 students a month now. That's incredible because when you think about the largest online universities, at least in this country, that would be the number one, right? You know, whether it's Southern New Hampshire or Western Governors, they're just over 100,000. Let's unpack this a little bit more. You, you referenced a few of these things. You know, first off, it, it sounds like you're not rejecting the degree per se, right? So when we think about a lot of these alternative certification or credential providers, whether it's boot camps or even short course providers, they're typically not providing any kind of degree. So it sounds like you have embraced at some level the degree. So it's a little bit of a dichotomy. Maybe you can talk about how that fits in with the model, both doing kind of short courses and shorter durations. Obviously, we're not talking about three and four years. We're talking about maybe one year, slightly less. How does that all work for you? And, and, and maybe you can also touch on your belief in a student getting a bachelor's degree or a master's degree and why that's still important in the market. It's a really good question. All belief is really on skills and competencies. So we're not there to make millions of students graduate a college degree. I mean, great if we can do that, but that's really not the end game. The end game is the number of career outcomes, job placements, and, and jobs and skills, basically. But the market still requires largely degrees. So even in the States right now, there's a huge talent shortage in tech and digital skills. You'd be amazed to know that 60% of job postings on software engineering in the States require a college degree. So employers are changing their hiring policies and practices to go from degree requirements to skills. But it's an ongoing process and we're far from completely there. So degrees are still a proxy for quality and for competencies. Sometimes it's an unfortunate proxy. It's probably not the most efficient proxy, but it is still the case. So we wanted to create really high quality education at scale, competency-based education to make sure that we provide the right skills for the right jobs in high demand. We can connect students and graduates to employers and yet at the same time align this system to more of the traditional academic system and grant degrees. So there is no question around whether this graduate or this student is worth the investment for, for an employer. So this is what we did. We got full degree awarding powers in Europe and we are building the same again in the States with U.S. degree accreditation as well. It's fantastic. So I want to jump into some of the elements of the program that really stand out for me. You mentioned the mentor. I also believe there's there's a career coach. Can you kind of paint a picture of, of what this looks like for the learner? I think I read somewhere that it's about 20% theory, 80% practice. You know, how many hours per week, you know, is it per student, let's say, to go through this? Is it a part-time, full-time? And maybe if you can round it all up, of course, talking about cost which is always on everyone's mind when we think about a college degree. We have kind of a very like flexible approach because we can go from a fully-fledged college degree 
down to just a course of 5, 10, 20 hours. It's a very modular, very granular uh, system. But let's take a typical like associate's degree that could be 12 months long, full-time. Obviously, you can do it part-time as well. It would take longer. You can take a break, come back. You can accelerate your learning. You're going to go at your own pace. So if you want to go faster, you can go faster. If you need more time and do it part-time, then you can go also slower. You can start and enroll at any time of the year. So it's not just a term starting on a given month. You can start tomorrow or in three weeks if you like. And then we design and we operate the full experience from orientation, admissions. We provide career counseling as well. Then enrollment, we're going to teach you through online courses. So courses are like MOOCs, Massive Online Courses. So you have videos, text content, exercises, activities, and so on directly on the platform. Then you have to complete projects. So a dozen projects for a 12-month-long program. Typically, projects are case studies. They're like the real-world stuff. So it's a learning-by-doing approach, as you mentioned. 20% theory, 80% practice. You're going to jump right in projects and then to complete your projects you need to understand the theory so you can leverage courses to do so and then you have access obviously to more of a like social network with all the students and mentors and teachers you can collaborate you can work together you can ask questions and so on but the cornerstone of our pedagogy is what we call mentorship so you're going to have a weekly mentorship session with an industry practitioner an expert in the field so if you study let's say AI or data science, you're going to have in front of you maybe a data scientist from, say, Google or tech company. And this person will coach you, with tutor you every week on a one-on-one basis via video conference. Same mentor every week. It's mandatory. So that means you're going to really see your mentors 50 times in a 12-month-long program. So you build a really strong relationship. At the end of every project, you're going to have to defend your projects in front of an assessor, validator. So that's a defense session. It's also via video conference in front of another person. It's not your mentor. And this defense session will be recorded in video as a proof of your skills. So this is when we assess your skills, but it's also a way to build a portfolio for your future employers to demonstrate what you build and how you thought about it and so on. So you have a dozen projects to complete. Every project will make you validate skills in a set of skills aligned to a job because the way we build programs is to that we start from employers needs which jobs are in high demand which skills behind those jobs and then we build the skill set and we build our curriculum from there at the end of our curriculum you completed your projects you're going to go through a jury you're going to be awarded with your degree your credential we'll offer you as well one-on-one career coaching, same principle. You have a career coach via video conference every week, one-on-one basis. They're going to review your CV, your cover letter, help you out, reaching out to employers, maybe like trying and working on your interviews, technical interviews as well. We have a network of thousands of employers we're going to connect you to, and we're there to help you until the very last mile, meaning until you find a job. Wow, Pierre, that's pretty amazing. And the thing that strikes me is 
the in-person experience that everybody sort of yearns for at some level is the intimacy they have with the instructor or the faculty member. And yet all of us can reflect on our experiences when we have that. And often it was a big classroom, sometimes a huge lecture hall, and wasn't anything like getting one hour of mentoring from an expert in that particular subject area. So I commend you for that because it's interesting. You're bringing sort of this, the best of both worlds, this, the MOOC-like platform, the open, massive platform that can leverage the best content, scale, videos, et cetera, but also the one-on-one coaching that people really can't advance that well unless they're getting that individual feedback. So that really is a pretty powerful model. Can you touch on the cost? Because one of the things that I've read and discovered is, is this idea of a job guarantee, which, which honestly is the, probably the single most attractive thing that I have towards your model. And so I'd love for you to unpack that for us. Yeah, the answer to, to that question, price point would be typically between four to $10,000 for a full college degree. It's interesting to add to that that 85% of our students don't pay anything and will never pay anything. So it's debt free. Why is so? Because they're financed by employers and governments. So they don't have to pay for any tuition fee zero. So the way we do that is by connecting employers to talent and notably through apprenticeship. If employers are willing to hire new talent and build talent pipelines, then they can invest in such talent pipelines by offering apprenticeship programs. So it's a learn and earn program in which you would work for four days a week and be trained for one day a week on a specific subject for 12 months, typically. And you have a job from day one, you have a salary, and tuition fees are covered by the employer. So to us, as a mission-run company, our mission is to make education accessible. It means also to make it financially accessible, hence the way we structure our price point. So it's not crazily expensive but also the way we leverage other funding mechanisms, financial aid to make sure that underserved and underrepresented populations can really have access to high-quality education and high-quality jobs. So what your model, it's interesting, because at Wiley we talk about this model called Hire, Train, Deploy. We've, We've been in it now for a few years, where really attracted to me in that was starting with the employer, the job that the employer knew they needed to bring somebody in for. And then they work with a third party like Wiley to hire an individual, which is a lot of process finding that person, training that individual, typically in the technology realm of subject areas and jobs, and then deploying them. And it seems like this right to left education process. Well, first to me, it eliminates the friction for the learner and the employer is really powerful. It seems like you're doing a similar model to that. Would you, would you say that's correct? Yeah, totally. We would call it typically apprenticeship. And the way we do it is by leveraging employers' relationships to make sure those partner employers hire apprentices from day one. It's really amazing because on apprenticeship, you would have typically a completion rate of 80 to 90%. And then a job placement rate at the end into like family sustaining uh, job of 80% as well. 
So really high completion rates, especially when you compare it to like your typical higher education program. And especially when you consider also that you have much more diversity through those programs as well, which is an angle that employers have in mind, clearly. Yeah, so maybe we could just double click on apprenticeships. So this is something that you evolved into, I think, believe in Europe, which obviously apprenticeships have been a big way that those systems operate and work. Where in the U.S. it it hasn't been as big, and when it has existed, it typically existed more in the trades, you know, vocational type of areas that are non-technology related. And yet you're, again, defying that model where it seems like the apprenticeships that you're exploring are more around technology careers. Is that correct? That's correct. We could call them tech apprenticeship because we're talking about not only trade jobs or lower levels of qualification, but you can actually learn a tech job through apprenticeships. So you can become a software engineer, you can become an IT support technician, you can become a digital marketer, data scientist, cybersecurity expert through apprenticeship. You can even get a college degree through apprenticeship that would be called degree apprenticeship. It's actually interesting to know that 10, 15 years ago, only in Europe, apprenticeship was understood the same way as you described, meaning lower levels of qualification, trade jobs only, you want to become a carpenter, plumber. And, you know, it was frankly less prestigious than a more like formal academic education. But that changed over time dramatically because of policy changes, but also because of employers really hiring more and more apprentices. So the number of apprentices in Europe grew significantly. Tier 1 colleges and universities started to implement apprenticeship aligned to their degrees. So in France, where I come from, you can get an Ivy League type uh, master's degree through apprenticeship. It's a thing. So it's quite amazing when you think about it, because it means that it it can be as prestigious as your college, your four-year bachelor's degree. So when you think this way, then you shift completely the paradigm and you think maybe actually apprenticeship should be like a really large part of an age group and could become not only 600,000 apprentices in the States right now, but 1 million and maybe 2 million which is the target that the current administration has set to grow the number of apprentices. Yeah, so it's a good point because in the last, I guess now, including Biden's three administrations from Obama, Trump to Biden, they've all been very much in favor of apprenticeships, (laughs) you know, each of them. And I've never seen an issue that's gotten more bipartisan support. And yet we have not been able to move the needle on this concept. So what do you think needs to change to sort of accelerate? Is it the employer side of the equation that need to step up and offer the apprenticeships or the, the universities that need to register as apprenticeship providers? You know, how are you thinking about this? The number one issue is the branding issue. As you mentioned, you know, apprenticeship is understood as, you know, trade jobs and lower level of qualification and kind of stuff. It is challenging as more and more employers really big brands like IBM and Amazon and, you know, Bosch and and many others are pledging to hire hundreds of apprentices, thousands of apprentices and develop 
to develop more and more apprenticeship programs. So that's clearly shifting and moving the needle. It's a branding issue, first of all. So it can be solved by employers, even first pledge to hire more apprentices. It can be solved also by states and by policymakers to just communicate more on the fact that apprenticeship is not just for construction jobs or for truck drivers. It is also a matter of funding and of bureaucracy, I would say, because right now, the system that we have in the States is called Register Apprenticeship Programs. It's national registration within 25 states. Then it's a state-by-state approach in 25 other states. So there is a level of complexity that employers don't really want to deal with. Right now, you have only local providers that don't really scale the way those large employers I mentioned would like them to. There is also some room for platforms or providers like us to come and provide apprenticeship programs really at scale and not just for a few dozen apprentices or 100 apprentices in a given state. Thanks for that explanation. So I want to try to define the problem, if you will, that you and I have been sort of dancing around, which is really this job skills gap. You know, I think, and you could define this better, Open Classrooms is primarily focused on some version of digital skills, whether it's software development or data science, cybersecurity, automation, you you can name it for us. And so, you know, from my understanding, the World Economic Forum stated that by 2025, there may be 85 million jobs being displaced and 97 million new jobs being created. So if you think about, that's a global number, but if you think about the scope of that, that's tremendous, right? And then if you look at some of the trends over the last several months in the US, we have tremendous amount of job openings that can't get filled. We have the great resignation. And so how would you define in your mind sort of the scope of of the challenge that we're facing as a society and and how Open Classrooms is is trying to, to sort of solve it? You see many numbers and research and studies on that. Typically, you would see that we think there'll be roughly between 30 to 50% of jobs being impacted by technology, meaning the skills behind those jobs will change in the next eight years, so by 2030. The lower estimate now is roughly 1 billion jobs, 1 billion people in need to be upskilled and reskilled. In that huge number, there is a part that just needs upskilling, which would be defined as a shorter form of training. And the rest would be in need of reskilling, which is much heavier. It would be more 250 hours and more. So that could be a couple of months full-time up to like a full year full-time. So 100 million roughly would be typically the number you'd expect for rescaling, so longer programs, and 900 million for upscaling. The challenge we are facing is gigantic, and there's no way that traditional players, brick and mortar, say universities, or even brick and mortar vocational training providers will be able to solve this issue. And by the way, since COVID and the great resignation and the talent shortage and so on, it is growing. 
we're not solving the issue. It's just getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, I think you just 10x'd the way I framed the problem, which is really daunting and exciting all at the same time. You just mentioned two things, upskilling and reskilling. And I know that as you've kind of worked out, you know, going from a more of a direct-to-consumer company to more of the B2B company, you've talked about these five different customer needs, thinking from the enterprise perspective of upskilling and reskilling, and I know there's several others. I'd love for you to just dive a little bit deeper to explain what each of these things are, because frankly, I sometimes confuse upskilling and reskilling, and I'm in this industry, so that it would be great to kind of frame that a little bit and how you're tackling the different needs of, of the enterprise customer here. So enterprise customers typically would have a need for upskilling, a need for reskilling, and a need for hiring. That would be the three main buckets, and then I can expand and get into the details. Upskilling is short training programs for existing employees. So typically be 20 hours, 50 hours of training. Imagine you're a marketing expert, but your skill set has been historically on print marketing and now you want to learn more about you know digital marketing and data analytics you don't need to go for 12 months on on the training program but you probably need like a full week or two weeks or a couple of hours a week for a few weeks of training to learn those those new skills so this is upscaling not a lot of time but a lot of people (laughs) Then rescaling is heavier. Rescaling is to switch carriers. So you want to learn a new trade, a new job, a f- new skill set from A to Z. So imagine you are a worker within a warehouse. You pack orders. You have a job that is paid by the hour, $15 an hour. You want to become a web developer. You want to become an IT technician. You want to become a digital marketing expert. That's going to take more time, typically between six to 12 months. So it's a longer commitment. Usually the threshold between upscaling and rescaling, we think it's around 250 hours of training, which is already like two months full-time, right? So it's already quite chunky. So rescaling is longer. There are obviously less people involved, but still, it, we're talking, you know, as we mentioned earlier, about millions, and it's much heavier. There are two branches of rescaling. One is rescaling within the same organization. So you move from job A to job B within the same organization because your organization might be completely transformed. So think about the banking industry. Maybe you need less bank clerks, but you need more data analysts. So they can switch from being a clerk to an analyst job. So that's internally. And then you have rescaling externally, which can be coined sometimes outscaling. So it's rescaling, then outplacement. So that means you're going to leave the company and find a job elsewhere. And in this case, we can also help you find a job in another company. Then the last bucket would be apprenticeship or we call that also unramp, learn and earn, walk and study. So there are many, many different names around that. But basically, it's a pathway to a job. It's a way for an employer to build a talent pipeline on highly demanded jobs and a more diverse talent pipeline. So it's more of a recruitment product to 
instead of buying talent by poaching them all the time, you can build talent. So it's a buy or build decision that employers have to make when it comes to talent. Now, more and more are thinking maybe it's actually cheaper to build talent because the talent will be more loyal afterwards and you don't have to just like bid over and over and over and your people are poached by all the companies for a higher price. Pierre, that would, thank you for that. So I, I just want to also frame the sector a little bit because you mentioned something about working with governments and I've been reading a lot lately from some of the, the competition, if you even call it that, Udacity, Coursera, they talk about these partnerships with governments. So that's pretty unique. You know, it's, yeah, I mean, universities may may do things with their local municipalities and governments in some form or fashion, but we're talking about a level of, and maybe this is really more upskilling type of education. And so one is, I'd love to understand a little bit more about how you're working with governments and what outcomes you're expecting to see there. And then second, how would you sort of define this industry since we typically have thought about post-secondary education, you know, people have a view of it, of colleges and where they're located, some big brands, some local brands, and that's about it. You and some of the names I mentioned are kind of changing the game here. Yes, we do work with governments on apprenticeship and reskilling. So we'd be mostly workforce development programs the principle is basically to reskill job seekers and school dropouts and other underserved populations, such as individuals with disabilities, refugees, also folks living in underprivileged areas. So we train them on a new job. It starts with coaching, orientation, career counseling, and then all the way I described earlier, then we place them in the workforce, typically through apprenticeship whenever possible. This is financed by social programs. So it could be workforce development boards, it could be state agencies, it could be public employment agencies and job centers, sometimes foundations as well. It could be privately funded. So we call that social programs is really around serving the underserved, basically, and bringing high-quality education to those of us who need it the most. So this is the work we do with governments. Thanks. So I know that you've talked about this BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal of 1 million students placed by 2025. And what stood out for me was placed, right? There are platforms out there that talk about serving millions of students, but what their job outcomes are are questionable. And we all know about the MOOC, even graduation rates, or not even graduation rates, course completion rates are in the single digits. And so that's a huge number, right? One million students placed a year, I don't know if it's by year or how you're thinking about that, is massive scale that makes a huge dent, billion person problem, if you will. Can you kind of unpack that for us and and make it believable? What would have to happen? What are the gotta believes? to make that come true? It's a big down, but on the other hand, it's only 0.1% of the total challenge. When you think about it, like 1 billion people to be rescaled and upscaled in the next eight years. So if we place 1 million a year, we're not talking about like less than a person. So it is very ambitious, yet at the same time, we need many more initiatives like open classrooms to be successful and face this challenge collectively. So what do we need to do? 
we need obviously to grow our number of students enrolled. This year, we're going to place 3,000 students in the workforce. Last year, we placed 15, the year before, 4,000. So it's growing the number of students is more or less between 50% to 100% year over year. Just, you know, we've been doubling year over year. The one big challenge we are facing is actually not necessarily growing the number of students, but actually having access, knowing what happens, knowing what the career outcomes were for, for students. The one way, you know, colleges and universities do that typically is through a survey. So they send a survey to their graduates and they ask them, do you have a job? What is your job title? Which employer? What is your salary? And so on. It's typically used in accreditation processes as well, but the response rate is pretty low. Let's say the reliability of the data that you collect is so-so, and it depends on the countries and on on different cultures as well, because some folks can be also somewhat ashamed if they don't have a job and lie to those services, salaries included, obviously. So now what we're trying to build is also partnerships with governments based on wage and tax data so we can actually track carry outcomes on actual data and not on surveys. So it would be a much more comprehensive and also long-term analysis. And we think that right now we don't capture all of the carry outcomes that we generate with our students because of this survey methodology and very low response rate and whatnot. So it's likely that by solving the data collection issue, we will actually dramatically improve the number of carry outcomes or at least the number we can prove, right? And then from there, we grow this number by 50% year over year until 2025, and you get to 1 million a year. That's an issue that you just hit on, the the collecting of the career outcomes that is probably the bane of my existence in studying higher education because there isn't as much of that, right? You know, colleges graduate these students. They might talk about their yield of how many students they accept, but they don't talk about how many people necessarily, beyond graduation, what are the true job outcomes and what is the return on investment, right? And that's the key to the whole thing there. So hopefully maybe you can make progress on this because I think the government, you know, has access to tax data, things that at least in the U.S. that maybe can, at least on the degree side, I believe you still have a partnership with Stanford online business, or maybe not business school, but their sort of course, uh, non-degree course platform. How do you think about partnering with the universities? Do you see that's part of your equation going forward? It is part of our equation, although we're clearly not an OPM, an online program manager for universities. We're on provider, we're on college. We don't need to be the provider or the partner of other academic institutions. However, we think there is value in partnering, obviously, with other institutions, both technology vendors, but also academic universities like Stanford, vendors like Microsoft or Salesforce. We build programs in a co-branded manner. So there is value in joint programs and co-branded programs, especially if you get, you know, a Stanford certificate or a Microsoft certificate. In other circumstances, you get also full degrees from another university. 
we have developed also transfer credit transfer agreements with universities like UMass. So that means that graduates from open classrooms can get college credits within UMass at the end. So it's about the recognition, basically, of those new innovative programs into the academic world, but also, and frankly, even more so into the employers and the workplace. So this is what we're trying to achieve through uh, partnerships. Then in the second, more like mid-long term, what we're building and did so actually in Europe is helping higher education institutions to digitize their programs by providing them with, you know, platform technology, content in a way that is already aligned to their academic credit systems, their frameworks, because we're a college, so it's easy for them to map this and we can basically operate the online component of their programs. You mentioned technology vendors, and that really struck a nerve because there's been an increasing drumbeat around big technology companies, whether it's IBM, whether it's Microsoft, whether it's Google, Amazon, that have been investing heavily in not just the education, their employees, that's one issue, but the delivering free education around certifications for project management or various other technology careers. And I think Google just dedicated $100 million in scholarship, which seems like it's the idea is, you know, come get this program. It's very cheap. It's through Coursera, I think a couple of them. And then in theory, we have these hiring partners. I'm still trying to unpack it all. But how do you see that? Do you see it as augmentation? Do you see it as competition? Because obviously they're trying to educate more people to use their technologies at some level. What are your thoughts on this? It's a movement. It's a movement towards scale-based education and training. It's a movement moving away from degree requirements for jobs to skills again. So I think it's great. I don't think open classrooms classrooms will be able to fulfill and solve all of the skills gap globally. So we do need many providers to join forces to face this huge global challenge. We are more, say, differentiated on longer programs connected to a really transformational career impact. So you get a job, you switch careers, you get a college degree and that kind of stuff. So the very kind of short term education, like 10 hours or even just like a few weeks, we do that. But I would say we're more focused on transformational high quality education at scale. So some overlap, but I think the market frankly needs many, many providers. So I'm not I'm not too worried about this. And I think it's also great if employers and technology vendors can help and chip in, but also pledge to hire based on those credentials and those new alternative pathways. So before we wrap up, you're so young, you've done such an amazing job already building this company to change education for the better. Is there anything else that you're looking to accomplish long term that we haven't covered yet? Well, I mean, it's going to be quite of a journey still ahead of me with open classrooms to get to one million students placed in the workforce every year. But one other area I'm truly passionate about is climate change. So you might also keep an eye on that. Like it's definitely something that one of the main social and environmental issues that probably will 
world will face in the midterm now. Somehow I'd like to contribute to if I can. Well, if you're educating a million people, there's not as many textbooks printed. <laughs> and of course, I'm, I'm part of a textbook provider, but we're moving digital every day more so. So last question for you. We talked a lot about mentoring and how important that is as part of your model at, at Open Classrooms. Part of what we love about education is that we've all had learning champions to help us get to where we are. Who has been a learning champion for you and how has that person helped you in your life? I had many and I have actually currently like three different mentors and had like other ones in the past. But outside John Chambers, the former CEO of Cisco, was one of the three mentors I have today. I'm very lucky to have him as my mentor. He's been incredibly helpful and insightful. His experience in fast-growing environment, in tech environment, as an investor as well but also as a manager, as an executive, working with other leaders in the field, working around people management, investment, M&A, and many, many other issues. So I'm, and I was, and I'm still obviously truly inspired by, by the way he approaches leadership and management. So I think it's pretty rare at this level, you see somebody really, caring and close to his people and in a really true and honest, direct way. So I love that of him. Thanks, Pierre. So Pierre, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I am an admirer of your work and the company that you're building and cannot wait to see you hit that 1 million placement mark in the coming years. So until next time, this has been an educated guest. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to an educated guest on your listening platform so you don't miss the latest episodes. For more information on Wiley University Services, please visit universityservices.wiley.com.